evening. <clears throat> Appreciate those songs tonight. That was a blessing. Uh, the way that it ties in with what we're going to be considering here tonight. It always encourages my heart. Amen. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, please. I'm going to direct your attention tonight to verses 9 through 11 for our text here. And tonight we're going to talk about, you'll find it in this passage here, but the comfort of our salvation. That's the title of the message tonight, the comfort of our salvation. Verse 9, the Bible says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. In our world right now, I don't, I really, I mean, anybody with um, half a brain <laughs> is, gonna, is going to recognize that things are not good in this world. And there's a world of bad news and serious problems all over the place, and daily those things can inundate and bombard our life through the various news sources and social media and all those things. And when you have a regular diet of that, I'm going to highly encourage you to stop, set it aside if, if you haven't already. But when you have a, a regular diet of that, or those are the things that you think about often, it's very easy to become discouraged and to even get depressed. And when you take a look at the world, it seems like the wicked are prospering on every hand while the godly suffer. And there are times when the Christian can possibly feel like, like David and crying out to the Lord where David said in Psalm 13, 1, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemies be exalted over me? And perhaps you have felt this way at times. You know, the current world, on uh, the way it is, I'm certain that some of you have been troubled and you've been anxious at times, uh, not just about current events, but maybe even things in your own life, and it's created anxiety in you. And instead of being full of anxiety, uh, God wants us to be people that are encouraged and full of hope, not full of anxiety in this world. And our verses here tonight, they conclude for us the section that Paul began back in chapter 4, in verse 13, where, of course, you remember through our studies here in this, uh, this book that Paul writes to this infant church. They hadn't been around very long. Paul spent very, a very short amount of time with them. We talked a lot about how he had to leave because of the persecution, but uh, the, how they were doing, how they were faring spiritually and physically was something that was weighing heavy on Paul's heart. And so he sent Timothy back to know how they do and to encourage them in the Lord and to help them grow and so on. And when Timothy comes back to give a report to Paul, he gives a good report. 
But in that, and that encouraged Paul's heart, and so he writes this letter. But in that report, apparently there were some questions, there were some things that were going on that Paul felt led of the Spirit of God to address. One of those sections or issues started in chapter 4 and verse 13, where Paul said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And so there was this fear, there was these questions uh, that were uh, inundating the, the Thessalonian believers' hearts and minds. And so Paul begins to address the questions and address the fears, the real fears that these people had regarding loved ones who had died and what happens to them and even regarding the return of the Lord. So chapter 4, he deals with the rapture of the saints and he ex uh, explains and instructs uh, what is going to happen when the Lord comes for his own. Then into chapter 5, Paul begins to talk about what's called the day of the Lord. And that's a, a terrible time, the day of the Lord. Paul's doing all of that to instruct the church, to give them instruction concerning what is the plan of God and how the saints of God fare in all of God's plans for this world. You get down to 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 8, and Paul says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul states that as believers, so the context is there's fear. The context is there's questions in the hearts and minds of the Thessalonian believers. Paul addresses those things, and as he's closing out this section dealing with those issues, Paul specifically says to the believers to put on the helmet, the hope of salvation, as a helmet. Believers were to put on as a helmet the hope of salvation. You know what hope means. It means a confident expectation. And so Paul is saying, as a helmet, put on this confident expectation of your salvation. Certainly it refers to the aspect, the future aspect of our salvation. When Christ returns and will forever be with the Lord. That's what Paul said in chapter 4 and verse 17. That we're going to be caught up together with those that have died. And together we're going to meet the Lord in the air and forever be with the Lord. That's what he's talking about. The future aspect of our salvation. So that raises a question. Why a helmet? Why is the hope of our salvation likened unto a helmet. Well, what does a helmet do? A helmet protects, obviously, right? You all agree with that? A helmet was one of the most important parts of a soldier's protection. When a soldier would go forth to battle, uh, the helmet was one of the most important protection pieces that he had in his armament. What does it protect? Well, it protects the head, of course. And so the idea that's, that's being laid out here is that the hope of our salvation, the future that we have with the Lord, is something that should be a protection for our thinking, for the way that we think as we live this, in this life, in this world. 
Now, the mind is where the battle is usually fought. Where do worries and fears begin? They begin in the mind, don't they? And we have a tendency to imagine. Some people always imagine the worst, right? They go from, you know, from a, a, a sliver or a hangnail to, oh, I've got cancer! You know, that's kind of how they are, where they just go from one extreme to the next, and it's just automatically the worst-case scenario. Well, you start to imagine things that aren't there, and you start to believe the things that you're imagining, and it creates all this anxiety and fear and worry in the heart. It begins in the mind, in our imagination. Paul has just described in chapter 5 the time that is known as the day of the Lord, which is going to come on the lost unexpectedly, suddenly, inescapably. They're not going to escape. But that day is not going to surprise the children of God, the children of light, those who are saved. In fact, Paul says we're to be alert, we're to be sober as we live in anticipation for the return of the Lord in the current climate. You understand? You following me? But even so, some Christians feel anxious and fearful about the days that we live in. And they worry a lot about a lot of things, about the vaccines, right? I probably said a word that Facebook is probably going to, you know, do something with. I don't know what they'll do. It would be false information, correct? We'll be banned. Go to Facebook jail. Um, people worry about those things. It's the mRNA vaccine. It's an experimental thing, and those are probably all real true things, actually. But what's going to happen? We're losing our freedoms. Our country's going down the tube, and it is. There's wickedness in high places. The leaders of our country uh, seem to, uh, to, to be, if you want to use the term, hell-bent on destroying any remnant of freedom that there is. Even persecution that could come to God's people in America. These are all things that people think about, things that people worry about. And like I said, the, the, the battle is often in the mind. That's where it starts. And so you understand the idea where Paul is saying, listen, listen, to protect your thinking, you need to put on the, the hope of salvation for an helmet. The idea of what our future is with the Lord is something that ought to protect our thinking in this life. Instead of being full of anxiety and fear and worry and fret and over all the potentials and the possibilities and so on, what is our future with the Lord? What has He promised us? All right? This is the, the framework, the foundation that Paul is, is building here or working through with the people. And so Paul goes on then to remind the believers in Thessalonica and us as well. He reminds us of the basis of our salvation and to exhort us to encourage and to build up one another with these truths. He says we need to put in verse 8 to have uh, the helmet of the hope of our salvation as a helmet. And then he says, here's why. 
Here's why. Verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, because of all of these truths, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. What was the problem with the church in Thessalonica? They were fearful. They were worrying. They had these questions. They were full of fear. So Paul lays out the truth, and he says, based on all of these truths, comfort yourselves together. Edify one another. And build up one another. And so tonight we're going to talk about the comfort of our salvation. Our salvation is based on three things. We're going to look at four things, though, in this passage tonight. First of all, our salvation is based on God's purposes. Secondly, our salvation is based on God's provision. Thirdly, it's based on God's promises. Therefore, we should find comfort and edify one another with these truths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you encourage us with the Word of God here tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Consider, first of all, that our salvation is based on God's purposes. Verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the context is future. The manifestation of, of our salvation, our, our, our gathering together with the Lord in the context of the wrath of God, which was earlier in chapter 5. Paul says the hope of our salvation, our future with the Lord, is something that protects us. And here's why. Because God has not appointed us to wrath. Our salvation is based on the purposes of God. The word appointed here is a verb. And it means to destine or purpose someone to. So Paul reminds these believers that God's purpose for His own is salvation, not His righteous judgment. That's what His purpose is. Now, recall the terrible destruction and the terror of the day of the Lord. Back in verse 2, "...for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night." For when they, that's the law, shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. It's coming unexpectedly, it's coming suddenly, it's full of destruction, and there is no escape. You remember the lessons that we taught and preached on the subject of the day of the Lord, a horrible time of God pouring out His judgment and His wrath on this world. But Paul says, God has not appointed or purposed you for that. In 1 Thessalonians 1, in verse 10, Paul said already to the church, he said, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. When we're saved, when we know the Lord, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we have already in possession everlasting life. And we're not going to come into condemnation. Amen? 
Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And we could go on and on with the scriptures concerning what God's purpose is for His own. Now the question then is, why, why does the Word of God emphasize this truth so much in regards to our future, in regards to our salvation? Is, is it just some theological point that, that really doesn't have that much practical value in our life? Is that, is that what this is all about? I would say hardly. Absolutely not. Because this truth right here is actually the basis of our salvation. This is God's appointment for His own. It means that, listen, God set His love on you and, and He sent His own Son to pay the price that's required for our redemption from our sin. He made us His own when He saved us. He's prepared a glorious future for us. So, our salvation from God's wrath is absolutely secure. Not because of our feeble abilities to hold on to God, because I can't do it. I can't grip God. That's not what it's based on. It's based on God's plan and God's purpose that He is going to finish. That should bring comfort in all the chaos that's going on right now. And evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. That's where this world is going. It's not going to get better. Philippians 1.6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What a promise. Amen. God's purpose. Look at John chapter 6. Hold your place here and look at John chapter 6. Not a very lively crowd tonight. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. What's the purpose and the will of God for His own? Everlasting life, and not one should be lost. Amen? Paul says, the hope of your salvation, the future you have with Christ, is a helmet. It protects your thinking so that you don't live in fear and anxiety and worry in this life. Now go back to our text, because before we leave verse 9, I want to note also that there are two and only two final destinies for all people. There's salvation and there's wrath. Verse 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. 
by our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation or wrath? In the context, wrath is the opposite of eternal life or salvation. And so obviously this refers to the eternal wrath of God. John 3 and verse 36 clearly contrasts these two opposite destinies. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Here's the truth of the matter for all people. God has ordained this. It's either eternal life or it's eternal judgment, depending on what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has purposed it. His purposes will not be thwarted. The Bible repeatedly, repeatedly affirms this truth that God's will and God's purposes are not going to be thwarted. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord hath prepared His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom ruleth over all. Chapter or Psalm 115 verse 3 says, But our God is in heaven. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. And Isaiah 14, 24 says, The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. There's not going to be anybody that doesn't fall into one of those two categories. And so Paul's first point is that our salvation is based on God's eternal purpose, which can never fail. Amen? And so, if that's true, let the storm winds of this God-hating world blow, friend. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day, amen, come what may. Our hearts should not fret and fear and worry over what's happening now, because listen, listen, my hope is in the Lord. My hope is in the salvation that I possess in Jesus Christ. Amen? I'll give myself an amen, because that was pretty good. I'm kidding. It's a good book. Second point, verse 10. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. The second point is that our salvation is based on God's provision. Not only on God's purpose, but also God's provision. The first part of verse 10 says, who died for us. Paul says our salvation is based on God's provision through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is constantly what Paul preached everywhere he went, that Christ died so that we could be saved. He had to die. Acts 17 and verse 2, the Bible says, And Paul, as his manner was, so this is something he regularly did, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. Paul preached that Jesus Christ had to die He reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ needed to suffer. He had to suffer. 
Jesus, while in the garden, prayed, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And certainly he's not uh, uh, fearful over the the suffering that, that he would necessarily endure. But the fact is he had to die. He had to be crucified. His blood had to be shed because there was no other way for sin to be forgiven. Someone might ask, well, why did Jesus have to die for our salvation, really? I mean, after all, you know, when someone wrongs you, you can just forgive them. Why couldn't God just forgive us without Jesus Christ needing to die? Well, the answer is, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. If God didn't punish all sin, He would not be holy and just. As the righteous judge of all the universe, God has declared that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so the necessity of Christ's death is, 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 is the, the basis of our salvation. The substitutionary death of Christ is at the heart of the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Obviously, He gave Him to be a sacrifice. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish with the wrath of God, but should have everlasting life. Amen? The substitutionary death of Christ is at the heart of the gospel. Salvation, which means deliverance from God's wrath. That's what it means to be saved, right? Why do you need to be saved? Because the wrath of God is on you. I need to be saved from that, rescued from that. Salvation means deliverance from God's wrath. And it's a free gift to all who believe on Jesus Christ and His blood, the blood that He shed for the remission of your sin. Now... That's not something that you and I do. We can't merit that or accomplish that. The only way we can have it is because God provided it. Our salvation is based on the purpose of God, the provision of God. Thirdly, the second part of verse 10, our salvation is based on God's promise of eternal life. Notice what Paul says. He says, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. After stating that Christ died for us, Paul adds this, that whatever happens, whether we wake or sleep, we're going to live together with him. If we live together with Christ, it means that he also is alive forevermore. Amen. God raised Jesus from the dead. Our entire faith rests on that truth. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our faith is vain. That word vain, it means worthless. And ye are yet in your sins. Jesus repeatedly predicted both his own death and his resurrection. In the upper room, when the disciples didn't believe the Lord, he told the anxious disciples, and later on when they were unbelieving, he told the sorrowing disciples, he said in John 14 and verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, get a little while, 
and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. Jesus kept his promise. After he was crucified, after he was buried, when he rose from the grave, he revealed himself to the disciples. And that revelation of himself to the disciples, Jesus uh, proving again that he was all that he ever said he was, it caused such confidence in the disciples that they went forth in obedience to the command of the Lord and they were so confident in, in the fact that, that, look, Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus rose from the grave and, and He said He's coming again. And I believe that with all of my heart. And they went out preaching the message. They were willing to suffer and die for that truth. What I'm saying here is that our salvation is also based on God's promise. Amen? God's promise of eternal life the eternal life to all who would believe. And whether, whether we're living when Christ comes or whether we die before He comes again, we will be given eternal resurrection bodies when the Lord returns and we will forever be with Him. That is a promise and God cannot lie. That's God's promise to all who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of that body of truth right there, Paul says that hope of salvation is protection for you and how you think so that you're not full of fear, which the Thessalonians were. But the application then comes in verse 11. As Paul concludes this whole portion, he concludes it with a practical exhortation. He says, wherefore? And that basically means because of all of these truths, all of these things that I've just laid out for you, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And so here's the fourth thought, and we'll conclude with this here tonight. Because our salvation is based on God's purpose, because it's based on God's provision, because it's based on God's promise. It doesn't matter what's happening now. It doesn't matter what's going to happen in the future. We can be confident and comforted by these truths. Find comfort and edify one another with these truths. When Paul exhorted the Thessalonians earlier on in chapter 4 to walk or to live so as to please God, Paul added something to that. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So Paul taught and preached how they ought to walk and to please God. We've exhorted you in this. And Paul says, my, my prayer for you is that you would abound more and more in how you walk to please God. Later on, when he exhorted them to love one another, he acknowledged this. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. He says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another, and indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. All right, you following this? 
I've given you this instruction. You're doing it. But I, my prayer for you and my exhortation is that you keep growing, increase in these very things. So here, when we get to our text in verse 11, when Paul exhorts them to encourage and build up one another, he adds this, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. So they were already active in their comforting and edifying one another. But in every one of these cases, Paul is encouraging them to keep on growing and excel even more in these things. So here's the application. We always have room to grow in pleasing God, loving one another, and encouraging and building up the brethren. We always have room to grow in those things. The word comfort here, where Paul says comfort yourselves together, the word comfort means to call near. It means to invoke and to strengthen. And it's usually in connection to words that we use. All right, to call near, to strengthen, to comfort, usually connected to words that we use. Now notice the word edify. He says, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. The word edify means to be a house builder. It means to construct. And so Paul combines these concepts, and it means using our words to build up the brethren and build the house. You follow that? Isn't that something that most of us need to be growing in? The words we use to strengthen, to edify, to build one another. Boy, it got even more quiet in here. Ephesians 4, verse 29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now the word corrupt in Ephesians 4.29, it means rotten or worthless. So let no rotten or worthless communication come out of your mouth. Rather than hurling rotten tomatoes of words at people, our words should be aimed at building up the other person according to the needs that they have or the need in the moment. And, and somebody might say, well, Pastor, the other person definitely deserves some rotten tomato words. And so if you think that that's okay, Paul adds this, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Grace, what is grace? Undeserved favor, right? I think there's definitely room for all of us to grow in extending a little more grace one to another. Especially in the words that we use. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Listen, more grace needs to be extended. Listen, why, why is it? Why is it that in order for people to feel good about themselves, so often that means tearing somebody else down? So that I can feel here, somebody else has got to be here. And we do that with the words that we say. 
according to the Word of God, the process of encouraging and building up is the responsibility of the entire church, not just the leaders of the church. Paul, when he wrote those words, wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he said, don't let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. It belongs, the responsibility belongs to the entire church. If you know Jesus Christ and you're a member of this body, you are responsible to encourage and strengthen others in the words that you use and in the deeds that you behave with or act in. That's your responsibility, as much as it is mine. The church will only be strong when every member is seeking to build up the other members for the good of the whole. A lot of times what happens is people sit around waiting for others to build me up. Why don't others reach out to me? If you've got a problem with this, how come you, how come you don't reach out to me? That's the attitude that so many carry sometimes. No. Ephesians chapter 4, flip over there, look at it. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up, into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The body grows. The body uh, increases, the church, the body uh, uh, is blessed and is, and is edified. Listen, when every joint and every part is doing what it's supposed to do, you have a responsibility. Whether you've been here for 39 years, 38 years, or whether you've been here for three months, you've got a responsibility to each other, just like I do. So the question is here, how do people know you? What kind of a body part are you? Are you a strength to the body? Or are you a stubbed toe that's hurt, causing hurt and pain all the time? Are you with me here? That's not something we just should overlook because we've got a responsibility. Paul told the church in Thessalonica, because of all these truths, you need to comfort yourselves together, edify, build up 
one another, even as you do. You're doing that, but you need to grow in it more and more. Listen, what kind of a body part are you? Just last night at men's prayer meeting, there were three of us there, Brother Gerst, Seth, myself. We sat around the table talking. I'll tell you what, I was encouraged. I was edified. I was strengthened just for being a part, number one, but then number two, listening to my brothers speak and my brothers talk. And the thought occurred to me last night, and I think I even said this maybe to both of these men, and I'll highlight particularly Brother Girth here. I could say this very same thing of others too. But I looked at Brother Girth and I said, Brother, you're an edifier. You're somebody who edifies this church and this body all the, time, all the time that I've ever known you. I have never known Brother Girth to complain. I've never known him to talk bad about somebody. I've never known him to say anything other than I'm praying for my brothers and my sisters in the Lord. I have sensed this and seen this throughout the years, this intense love for the brethren and for Plaque Road Baptist Church. I could say the same of others, too. But I thought, you know what? Every church needs somebody like Brother Girth. In fact, every church needs a whole bunch of Brother Girths. Edifiers. Who build, who grow. For the good of the whole. What kind of body part are you? Listen, this world is crazy. It's getting worse. We ought to keep our mind, or actually what ought to keep our mind from fear and from worry is the great promise of the hope of our salvation, our future. No wrath from God. That keeps my heart and my mind. And the other side of that is we need each other. We ought to be encouraging and strengthening one another in that which is spiritual. We definitely don't need to be at odds with each other. We're already at odds with this world. It doesn't need to be in the house of God or in the body. Amen? That's some good truth. We've got a bright and a glorious future. Let's keep on encouraging one another in that. Amen. And as the days get darker, that's, we need each other even more and more. Let's work to edify, to build, to grow, to comfort with the hope of our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its encouragement, its challenge to us. Lord, how it teaches us and it furnishes us truly. Lord, that we could be complete in you. Lord, you use your word just to sanctify. And Lord, I'm so thankful that you've given it to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to apply it, to be obedient to it. And Lord, as was already prayed tonight, may these things rest in our heart, in our mind this week. And Lord, I pray that if there are some who are discouraged, fearful, questioning, or their 
future in Christ would be the thing that encourages and challenges them. Let the winds blow, come what may, we're secure in the Lord. Lord, I pray that there would be a heart and a mind of God's people to edify, to build, to grow, to encourage one another, especially in the days that we find ourselves in. Bless your people. Knit our hearts together in truth and in love. In Jesus' name, amen.